podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey, <laughs> yeah, we're back. Let's go. Yeah, he said we put the glasses at the same time, Spence. Robin, power. The power. Batman and Robin. <laughs> the greatest combination since Batman and Robin. <laughs> anyway, let's start. Dream it. Believe it. Become it. Come on down. And we ain't joking what we're saying coming on down today because, right. like, it's it's a, it's a hype one. And I'm saying, like, for one of the guys who, who who has been a legend of British boxing. Legend. Right? Um, and one of the most technical fighters that this country has ever produced. Right? And if I had a young fighter, I would say... He was British boxing's equivalent to to uh, Ricardo Lopez. When we look at technical style, yeah, go on to that. Alex, oh. you know, Lopez is my man, and I've been watching Duke from back in the day. Because, but over the last couple of nights, I've been really going back and watching Duke's career, and this guy, everything that you would want from a fighter technically, Duke displayed that. One million percent, and 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 more. Ton, I would say, and more. Yes, yes, and more. Um, the way how Duke would um, um, catch <coughs> up, how he would throw four jabs at a time. Yeah, come on, man. His his consistency, his 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 honesty to the game of boxing. This guy, trust me. Absolutely fantastic fighter and not given the dues. Now, you have to remember, he was British boxing's first freeweight world champion. Imagine. Right? Imagine. And, and just to cut you there, it's like he's been, that generation has been wiped off. Yeah. And the great yeah. man said, if you don't know your history, you don't know your future. Exactly. So well, was, if you don't know if you uh, if you don't know your history, you're like a tree without roots. Yes, that's Marcus Garvey. I know that. All right. I'm an honorary I'm an honorary, honorary Jamo, Jamaican. Yeah. So don't worry about that. Of course you are. Of course you are. Just I like I'm an honorary Niger. Because if you look on my toes, I've got black toenails. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Spence. I've got a little surprise for you this evening. All right. Yeah, watch this now. Gary, before we bring in the one and only Duke McKenzie MBE, play the tape, please. Obviously, emotion still running high there in the corner. Lloyd Hannigan giving his congratulations as well. Very happy scenes, Charlie, aren't they? That's right, it is happy scenes there. All these brothers in the ring, Duke McKenzie can't even get his senses there. I think he's giving a little cry. Are they ready? Ready, let's go. I'm going to go around Right, Harry, I think, is with the new champion. Congratulations, that was a tremendous performance. Are you all right? Can you talk to me? You're overwhelmed, I know what it's. What can you say to me? Oh, eh? no, that was an amazing performance. You took the guy apart. You absolutely <laughs> took him apart. 
It's, uh, yeah, man, you took him apart. You took him it's apart. just been a long time coming. Um, you waited a long time, that's right. It's been a long time. The night's here and you've done it. Yeah. It's <laughs> tremendous. Yeah, they've done it in style, Larry. I can't believe done it. Done it in style. Tell me about how did you plan it? What was the plan? There was no plan. I just knew I had to go with him, Mario. But you brought him so well in the early stages. You he was so strong. I thought he was going to knock me out. <laughs> Right, right, come on, come on, come on. He, was, he was never going to knock you out, my son. Yeah. You always kept him out. But what a finish. What do you think of that finish you just put in there? That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Duke, the champion. Well done, congratulations. And Charlie Magri told me to congratulate you. So that was great. Duke, thanks very much. Good almighty, Spence! You know when you used to go dance and you played a dub plate and it just... <laughs> Spence, that was, that was serious, isn't it? That was very, very serious. Very, very touching. Oh, I, actually, I, I was at that fight, you know? You? You was at that fight? I was at that fight. I was at that fight. Yeah, you know I mean? I was what? at that fight. I, what was that? I think that was October... October 5th, 1988. Go check. Am I right? The knowledge, the knowledge, it was, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. October the 5th, 1998. <laughs> the knowledge does it again. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce to the Fight is Right watchers, viewers, and listeners, the one, the only, the one known as the little man, the ever humble, ever gracious, one and only, Mr. Duke McKenzie, MBE. Hey, Ben Spence, good to see you guys. How you doing, mate? Yeah, really good, thanks, champ. Really good, really well. Spence, I'm excited, I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, 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 I recognise you now. It's like you've had the old Duke McKenzie. Huh? So it's again. It's like you ate the old Duke McKenzie. That Billy's looking. <laughs> I've joined. I've joined. Listen, I do. I've got. This is my walking round weight now, so I can eat what I want. I drink what I want. I, I'm comfortable. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. This. I'm ridiculously happy. It's stupid. I'm just. I'm in a, I've always been in a good place. I can see in the background there. You have got your WBO belt. I believe that's a WBO belt. Oh, there, right? well, no, that's my WBO Bantamate World Title Belt. I just thought yeah. we looked good for a little bit of the backdrop. Yeah, yeah. You know, where, where's the IBF belt? Where's the IBF belt? Go and get it. The IBF belt, oh. because that was when you... Rodolfo Boja. Yeah. Yeah, that was when you 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 boxed excellently in that fight. That was... Uh, yeah, that was... that was. Listen, I had... I As you know... I've had, I've, had an, I've had a career that really I could only really have dreamt about. And, you know, when I started off in boxing, I, my dream was never to become a world champion. That was just, that was always my brother's dream, Dudley. Dudley had always set me up. Dudley had always said to me, you know, you've got greatness within you. you could be, you're going to be, you're going to smash this. And by smash it, he didn't mean, you know, become a world champion straight away. But he, Dudley, Dudley, had, Dudley had so much confidence in me. Dudley filled me with confidence. I mean, listen, everybody needs somebody, right? Dudley's my older brother by 18 months. And um, like I say, without his sort of love and support, really, um, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. So, I mean, listen, all that I am and what I'll ever be owed, owed to my brother Dudley, specifically. Like, I've got five, bro five other brothers who I love dearly. But uh, they were just saying about Dudley. Me and Dudley, we just, we would, like I say, we were more than brothers. 
Yes, listen, in 95, I lost my brother to a suicide. And, uh, you know, listen, my life has never been the same since. Um, There's not really a lot I can say about Dudley that that, that really, you see, this is another reason why I've stopped. See, I've been been trying to write a book for the last couple of years. and, And because Dudley played such a big part of my life and was in my life for such a long time, I have to keep putting it down because I can't finish it because I just can't find the words to do him justice. Do you see what I mean? And it's very, very difficult for me to get over certain periods, certain things that were going on in my life uh, with Dudley in and around, you know, together. Like I say, I've never known anybody in, in my whole life. This includes my, my coach, Colin Smith, Mickey Duff, my manager, uh, people that know him, people that really love me. Nobody nobody loved me more than my brother Dudley. And when I won in World Title Fights, Dudley won with me. When I lost in World Title Fights, Dudley lost with me. And like I say, when I used to melt down, have a breakdown and, would be scratching my head. My brother was always there to lift me up, but he took so much of me on board, really. Uh, I, probably too much. Do you see what I mean? So, um, like I say, my my whole my whole my whole me, who I am, what I am, what I do, everything that I've ever achieved. I I really have to put it down to you know my peers and role models that I had in my life. And Dudley Dudley played such a massive part of my life. And really, um, I've never had another relationship. Another relationship like that with another man in before. I've got five other brothers that I said that I love dearly, but Dudley, Dudley, we like I said, we're more than brothers. I can't really put it in any more simple than that. Um, you know, it seems that recently, you know, there's there's a big drive um, about the mental health situation and, and, and people are becoming more open, you know, and speaking about it. And, um, like, how do you feel about that? Like, you you feel that it's a good thing that's happened, you know, having a brother, you know, losing a brother to to suicide. What's your thoughts on the current day? You know, every, you know, the, the mental health, and I, I guess Tyson Fury has, uh, has made it, you know, something to talk about. But I hear a lot of, especially young people now, you know, coming out and speaking about the problems they've had or are having. Uh, what's your take on that, Duke? Well, you know... Um... Since the loss of my brother, it's made me be a lot more probably, uh, I don't know if sympathetic is the right word, but certainly certainly a lot more sort of compassionate towards just my everyday man, really. And I am an ambassador for the mental health organisation Mind, and I try to, I don't know if educate is the right word, but I try to, I try to, I just listen to people. That's my, if you, for the want of a better word, that's my gift. I, I'm a good listener. I, I love to talk and I love to listen. and. I've been working with mine for about sort of 15 years on and off, um, working with people specifically with mental health problems, people who have been in and out of mental health hospitals, like the Bethlehem, which is the second biggest mental health institution in the country. Um, I get groups, I used to get people, groups of up to 10 people uh, that come directly out of the hospital to come and my, use my gym as a way of like rehabilitation, if you, if you will, back into the real world. And... You know, boxing, boxing for me has given me such a great life. It's given me such a good purpose. And I just really hope that, I mean, I believe all boxers are a little bit touched in, in one way or another. Yeah. And I, I just think that um, everybody walks a fine line because, you know, believe it or not, from four round fighters to, to 12 round championship fighters, when you go home and the fight's over, win, lose or draw, there's questions to be asked. And if you don't ask the questions and you haven't got the answers for these questions, then sometimes there's more questions than answers to them, Dave. 
and mm. it can be a real troublesome period for anybody at any walk of life. And if you're not making it and you're not getting the breaks that you want, you become frustrated and Spencer, you'll know because you've done it. So it's a very, very, it's a very, very fine line that boxers walk. Boxers are like thoroughbred racehorses. They've got to be treated with kiddie gloves and you have to know when to shout at them and when not to shout at them. And yeah. when, you know, when to them and when, and when not to. And for me, there's not enough teachers out there now. Yeah. Oh, I'd like to say, Drew, probably touch on mental health. I think before Tyson Fury, the one that really highlighted the, 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 the mental health issues was actually your nephew, Leon McKenzie, um, former Leon. like heavyweight champ. And, um, and Leon, Leon highlighted in, in a way, sorry, super, he's super good away, right? Leon, yeah. Yes, Leon highlighted in, in a way, like, so what was the support system that you offered to Leon when he was going through everything? Because I remember Leon as a footballer, right, um, being on, like, GMTV, doing kick-ups in a pair of Gucci loafers, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, right? And, like, I'm saying, wow, that's Clinton's son, you know? Because yeah. I, remember, I, remember, I remember Leon, the night you won the world title against against yeah. Boha, and I didn't even notice Leon. It's only now that we're talking about it. And I said, yeah, because I remember yeah. seeing your brother Clinton with, with, with some little curly and high color. That's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I've, always, I've always been um, Uncle, Uncle Duke, and he still calls me that to this day. Leon's 40 years old now. I'm always, <laughs> but he still calls me uncle, which I love him for. And I haven't, listen, all I've had to be to Leon is, is an uncle. And I think I've done a, a decent job being an uncle. You know, I call him up regular, I call, talk to Leon all the time. And that's we've always been reasonably close. But see, what Leon's always had in his life, he's had a fatherly presence. So while Leon was going through all of his chaos and all of his madness and, and divorce and, you know, the, the breakup maybe in his life and the football breaking down and everything else, he's always had his dad to fall back on. And fortunately for Leon, you know, they're very, very close and uh, they've got a beautiful relationship. They really have. I mean, Clinton, my older brother, as you know, he was like, Clinton was like my dad. Clinton was like my dad. Uh, Clinton showed, always showed me love growing up. Clinton would be the first one to... You know, the highlight for me on a Friday when I was about four or five years old, I'd get home from school, Spencer, and Tunda, I'd get home from school. And the highlight for me, I couldn't wait to get in and have a bath, put on my best pair of short trousers, I put on my best pair of flip flops, uh, my best pair of plimsolls, and a white t shirt I was used to wear. I only had two in those days. And my brother Clint would walk me to the shop, it was called Chapman's Sweet Shop, at the bottom of South Lord Hill. And we'd walk there, take us about, I'm not joking, what should have took us probably about, on a, on a good day, you could walk there in five minutes. It took, it took us about an hour because we would just take it step by step by step. It was always sunny. It was always shining. Sun was always shining. And Kit would walk me to this shop, buy me a strawberry mousse, buy the, uh, buy the boxing newspaper, and we would read it front page to back page coming back. It was, it was like the highlight of my week. I couldn't wait to walk down the street with my older brother because he like hold my hand and, you know, like I said, buy me strawberry mousse. And I, I thought I was like Johnny Big Bollocks. I was, I'd arrived because I was, I had a boxing news and I, it was, it was, it was, you know what? They, they, were, they were like the early 70s and um, we had such a special upbringing because down our street, there was always, there were so many families. There was like the Kennedy families, the Mackenzies. Uh, I think there was like a Watson family. There was um, the Marx family, but they, everybody had like sort of 10, 15 kids in their families. And we would all just go out and play football. 
we'd always go out and do something as these communities, because that's what we were then, you know, everybody would just like come together, we'd just go down a local park, which was Tennyson Park in South Norwood, we'd go down there, my dad just kick us out in the morning from eight o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night, we was out all day just playing football, and, and my brothers would do shadow boxing in the park, but the time went like that, from the minute we got up to the minute we got out, we was only allowed to come back for an hour in the afternoon, get a bit of lunch, like beans on toast, and sugar and water, because we, we couldn't afford orange juice or Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll lick sugar and water all day long. And <laughs> so, but, but the community was just great growing up. It really was. And uh, 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 I miss those times. All right. So before we, we touch on, I mean, listen, I think that that was a wonderful way to start off the show, Spence. Andrew, you know, highlighting the mental health. And I, it's not nothing we planned for. But I'm so glad we did start it off like this. But you know, we're here to discuss you, your illustrious, <laughs> your illustrious, wonderful career. And um, obviously, we started at the top of the show with showing you that night against Rolando uh, Boho and winning that, you know, that flyweight title. I take, I want to take you back down memory lane, Drew. Let's tell us how you felt because you, you know before that what we did a show is when you dropped him in the level brand and and Harry Carver went damn him damn him man <laughs> yeah that was the highlight of the whole thing for me the way Harry Carver said damn him you know because the guy was a, as you said the guy was a tough guy and you know when I heard your words at the end and you said you know the guy was so strong you know that probably was the first Manny Pacquiao because he was from the Philippines. Well, he, he's, uh, his trainer was a guy called Flash Elorde. He was the first, I believe, Filipino world champion. And what you find with a lot of the Philippine guys, or a lot of guys from that, you know, from that side of the world, they're always short, stocky. I mean, when I looked at him with the way, and he had muscles coming out of his ears. And he was just looking me up and down. He speak all in English, but I knew what he was thinking, and he knew what I was thinking. And right then and there, at the weighing, I can remember, I broke out in a cold sweat. Because I was weighing him up in my mind, thinking, this is what I was saying to myself. This is at the weighing. I said to myself, I can't beat this guy. And Dudley was standing right behind me. And I swear to God, as I live and breathe, my brother just leaned over my shoulder and he whispered in my ear and he said to me, little man, he said to me, there's nothing to fear except fear itself. And right then in there, I don't know what it was, but I had to stand up and be counted. So I looked at him back and I stared him out on one thing and another. But I, would, I kept I, would, I kept doubting myself. This is like on fight day. I'm, I'm like doubting myself. So I've gone to the hotel with my coach and Dudley. And, you know, Dudley, Dudley just spoke to me for the whole afternoon. Even when I was trying to sleep and lay down, my brother just kept talking to me and talking to me and talking to me, telling me how I was going to win the fight and how I was going to break this guy down. And, you know, we, we planned on breaking it down in, in, in quarters, like from one to four, four to eight, and eight to 12. You know, the first four rounds of the Bahal fight, if you watch it closely, the plan was I was just going to run like a thief in the night. And because I didn't want to get hit. I mean, those gloves that we wore on fight night, they weren't eight ounce gloves. They were six ounce gloves. I've still got them to this day. Now, they were six ounce SDI, yeah, SDI gloves. And when he, threw yeah. his first, when he threw his first shot, I just felt the wind go past my chin. It went whoosh. And it missed me by, literally by a whisker. And I just kept saying to myself, I can't get nailed early. And if 
if you watch the fight, Spence, and, and if you watch it Sunday, like you said you did earlier, if you watch the fight, for the first two rounds, I, was just, I run like a thief in the night. But at the beginning of the third round, I get so fed up with running, I say to myself, I've got to test this guy. And mm. I, stopped, I stopped running and I test him. And he, but he just, he literally just walks onto a straight one, two. Now, the fact that I've made contact gives me a little bit of confidence to try it again. So now I might have lost the first two rounds, but I definitely win the third round. And each round thereafter, I'm just pacing myself. Do you see what I mean? But all I say to myself is, if he throws one, I'm going to throw two. If he throws two, I'm going to throw three. I just kept saying it was like a numbers game. And I just wanted to try and just keep my head, keep, my, keep myself ahead in the fight, at least in my own mind. And if you watch the fight closely, between rounds, when the, when, when the camera comes back to my, uh, my corner, I'm talking to my coach because I'm not even conscious of what round it is. I say to Colin, yes. what round is it? Because I'm just talking to myself constantly. Good fight, Mackenzie. Get up. Another good round, Mackenzie. I just, Mickey Duckett says to me, put them in the bank. Each round, just keep banking it, banking it, banking it. And when we got to the, I think, the beginning of the eighth round, and I'm saying to myself, I've got four more rounds to complete. Even if I lose, even if I get knocked out, all I kept saying to myself was, I've come this far. And that gave me confidence to go that little mm. step further. It's very, very hard to, um, I don't even know what the right word is or how to explain it properly. But when you win a world title fight, even though you're ranked number one in the world, you still got questions to be asked. Because, you know, when I look back on my career, at each of my sort of championship fights that I had, and I mean, it started in 1982 with Danny Flynn winning the British Flyweight Championship. Yeah, I'm going to get... This I'm just yeah. sort of taking the journey, Spence, on how I got to the Bahal yeah. fight. See, the, yeah. the Flynn fight, the Flynn fight was, was about building confidence, really. He was so petrified on fight day as I was, but the difference between me and him was I didn't show it. Do you see what I mean? So when I beat Danny Flynn for the British Championship, which was my dream um, when, when I did start boxing, was to become British champion, to emulate my older brother, Clinton, who was already British champion. I did that and I thought to myself, okay, now I've got something because now I've got a Lonsdale belt because that's what I wanted. Moreover, because Clint had the Lonsdale belt. So I got that. Then when I got nominated to fight Charlie Magwin for the European title, I didn't know what I had. I knew I had something, but I didn't know what. Do you see what I mean? But I knew I was going to find out when I boxed Magri because Magri was former world champion, as you know. Um, yeah. just regained, he just regained the European title from Franco Cherky in Italy. And he got to Italy. <laughs> Charlie Magri was a monster. Charlie Magri was the favourite going into that fight with you. You do realise that, right? Yeah. I mean, I still, I still think that a lot of the press and there was a lot of the public particularly despised me or certainly took a dislike to me when I beat Charlie at that time. Because Charlie Magri at that time, was he was what Frank Bruno was to the heavyweight division. Everybody loved Charlie. He was like Champagne Charlie. He was on the top yeah. of the unit. I, the, the, it's funny that you just mentioned, you know, the, the, the game plan for the first, you know, the first part of the um, Bahol fight, because that's how I saw, because I watched the Magri fight last night again, and Magri come out like a bull in a china shop. Yeah. And you were just sidestepping, moving, running like a team. And yeah. I said to Spencer, this is our no boxing, because in the third round, you caught him with a, a, a hook. And I yeah. said to myself, being the first time I watched the fight, I said, he's going to knock him out with a left hook. So when the, the left hook coming in a, 
called it the double deuce. I called it the double. <laughs> double deuce. Well, Clap him down. I said, yeah. This is like I say, you know, the, the Mowgli fight for me is what I call a, it's like what I call a coming of age fight because yeah. he was a football champion. He regained the European title against all the odds in Italy, and it, it was it was almost like a world title eliminator because after 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 winning the European title from Charlie Mowgli, I was then I then got a genuine sort of world ranking. I think they put me in at about about number seven, I think, at my first official world rating. And then yeah. I had a European title defense. I went to I went to Italy and I defended against you. That's when you ended into the WBC rankings. I remember. I can remember yeah. that. That's right. That's right. I beat Pinna, I beat Jim Piano Pinna in Italy in his backyard. And that's another story. That's another mad, mad experience. But anyway, I got that. And now all of a sudden, I'm ranked like number one in the world to fight Sotchitalada for the WBC title. And Chitalada, I don't blame him because Mickey Duff tried to do a number on him, get him over here in the winter when it was cold. He'd always he'd never been outside of Thailand. Yeah, he'd never been outside of Thailand. And, you know, we, we was trying to get him over here. and uh, But he wouldn't have it. And, I, you know, listen, I don't blame him because I was very much on the ascendancy then. And um, then Mickey Duff switched his attention to the IBF. And then this is to, by the time the whole fight came around, I was I was more than ready for it. If you see what I mean, but I didn't. Again, I didn't really know what I had because my confidence wasn't where it was supposed to be. Until so my brother put enough confidence in me and helped me to believe in myself. And like I say, when I started to break the fight down, I was gaining confidence because from one to four, into the fourth round, I was still there. So from yeah. four to eight, I'm still there. I haven't been knocked out and I haven't got a mark on me. And fortunately for me, my hole was five five. I'm five seven, so I had a bit of a height and reach advantage. And yes. once I started yes. picking up with the jab, everything just started to flow quite nicely. And he, you know, if you look at most of my early fights, certainly as a flyweight, I was a fair body puncher. I stopped Danny yes. Flimmer body shot. I got Maggie with a body shot. And I kept chipping away at bow hole. And ultimately, I get in with a really decent sort of, it's like a right sort of uppercut to his, to his left elbow in, at the beginning of the 10th round. I can hear him sucking up air badly. And that just gave me more confidence. And I just went after him after that. And the rest is history. Right. So moving forward. Now, I mean, especially you wanted to talk about the Danny Flynn fight. I wanted to talk about the Danny Flynn fight. Yeah. There were some good guys on that on, on the under like on the undercard. Like yeah. I remember Michael Watson was on that. Sure. Yeah, Michael because Michael Watson was signed with um, uh, Mickey Duff at the time. Yeah, That's Michael right. Watson on there, and like there was there was big there was big talk about this Michael Watson you. Yeah, like at that time there, what was it like being in the gyms? How things oh. were? I mean, like recently we just on 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 Friday just gone um, the great Huey Curry, and I'm calling it great because he held the British title. And, and yeah. nobody said nothing. And I remember, like, you wrote something really nice on our page. What were your, what were your memories, like, of the camaraderie that you had with all the fighters, especially you and Curry just passed away? I know oh, it's bad. Yeah. What, 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 I, what I did, Spencer, you know, I, boy, when I say it was special times training, it was special times training. You know, like, every Sunday when we used to train at the, uh, I mean, we used to train at the Old Kent Road, Thomas and Beckett gym. And sun, 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 Sunday was always sparring day for everybody. Everybody sparred on a Sunday. 
But the camaraderie that we had there, you know, for the late Hero Curry was just an absolute gentleman. The fun, one of the funniest guys, I'm telling you, if you knew him, I mean, well, I don't know how well you do know him, but he was one of the nicest, one of the funniest, one of the, one of the, one of the happiest people in boxing. And Hugh always had a story to tell. And, you know, he had this really sort of broad Jamaican accent. Well, he didn't really. He used to put it on, but <laughs> it was great because, <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it, it, it was great. Hugh would always have this way and in, in the gym. And he was just, it was like he was just there to support everybody. I mean, in the gym on the Sunday, there were people like, I made, I made, a, I made a list, right? So there was guys like Billy Ruska, Ivan Engine Jones, Tim Driscoll, Charlie Coke. Casey McCallum, Hugh Curry, Prince Rodney, uh, Vernon Van Riel, Errol Christie. Oh, fellas, I need to, um, oh, damn it, I need to plug my machine and I'm going to go off. Yeah. Can I just, can I just, sorry, sorry. sorry. This is live. This is live. Yeah, you, saw, you see what their names he's calling? You serious? Vernon Van Riel, yeah? He was yeah. a light I don't know how that guy ever won a British title. Vernon Van Rool would come into the York Hall, have a top top hat on, yeah, when he'd fight. And he would take his. He, in fact, Vernon Van Rool was the first British fighter to come into the room with his own interest music. Oh, wow. Sorry. Right? So we're talking like 83, 84. And Vernon Van Rool, remember he used to go with him. He's used to have a top hat. He's coming with a top hat. And you throw the top hat and it would go all the That's way around. It. Listen, Vernon the Entertainer Van Real, and like, so he'd be in the gym, and I can remember being on a bag specifically, and Vernon would be on a bag next to me, but he'd stop doing what he was doing to come and hold the bag for me, and he'd, and he'd almost coach me sometimes, as did Hugh Roy. Everybody had time for everybody when we was in the gym. We learned so much from one another, and we just learned how to be, you know, for the want of a better word, boxing brothers. You know, I couldn't wait to get to the gym at any any day, to be honest with you. Because, like I say, the guys that were down there, you could, there was always somebody you could learn from. And back then, the sparring, if you ever saw El Christie and Prince Rodney sparring, I'm telling you. Listen. It is as good as, it, it would have been as good as a world title fight today. Wow. Listen, can you tell people about how good Prince, Prince Rodney was? Prince, listen. If Prince Rodney was fighting today, Prince Rodney... No shadow of a doubt, Prince Rodney would be world champion today. If he was fighting today, judging by today's standards, boxing today isn't specifically like how I know it. You know, I, um, it's not really like how I know it. It's not. It's changed a lot. I'm talking about proper old school, you know, fainting, slipping, blocking, you know, stepping, turning guys onto shots, stepping on their toe, hitting them with a shot. Prince Rodney had every punch in the box. Prince Rodney's probably the only person I've ever seen spar with Errol Christie and hold his own. I mean, I see Errol spar with a lot of guys and, you know, absolutely destroy guys in sparring because he was just that good. He, Errol was on another level. But Prince, Prince Rodney would more than hold his own. Bearing in mind, Prince was a, was a light middleweight. And if he was, I mean, he'd probably walk around at middleweight, but then like men... Christie was a light heavyweight. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but you would you'd pay to watch it. Those guys were just um very you know, I'd say very, very special times for me, certainly. So um Jimmy, were you, were you present when I think it was nine eighty eight when um it was Earl Christie sparred with Chris Eubank. Was you present at that, that spa? Yeah, 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 yeah. On a so, I was there, you know. I was there. And you was know what? Dean Powell. Dean Powell 
God rest his soul, because Dean used to work at the Thomas and Beckett then, right? So, that's right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, so Dean used to kind of manage the gym, take care of yeah. the gym. He was like a caretaker. And, yeah, the, yeah, and yeah, he was. He was. I mean, like you say, but, if you if you saw Errol Christie sparring uh, with anybody, you knew it didn't matter what you were doing. You were going to stop and you were going to watch. So yeah. when you see when you see Christie spar, like I say, with with Chris Eubank, though, well, well, the sparring yeah, the sparring the sparring that I saw, the sparring that I saw. I'm not saying that it always works out this way, but the sparring that I saw. Christie always got the better of it. Yeah. 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 I'm yeah. Yeah. The yeah. 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 He couldn't. He, he he didn't convert it into a professional. But the thing about it is this: is fighters knowing it, we know it, and he's a special talent, man. A very. Sad, sadly, sadly, a lot of a lot of top amateurs don't make good professionals. And yeah. if you look at my brother Dudley as a prime example, Dudley won everything as an amateur. Dudley's a four-time champion. Dudley was a four-time scoreboy champion, a, uh, a junior ABA champion twice, an ABC champion. Dudley went to the first world championships in Yokohama in Japan in 1979. I've still got the bag. I've still got his, his, his bag that he took with him. I've still got that, the original bag that he got from Yokohama. Um, Dudley had six professional fights, won his first four, and then he lost to, he lost to a guy from Finland which I thought was just bad management. Then he lost to James Cook, and then Dudley just walked away from the sport. It, he was sick of it. He just had enough of it. Dudley was like a pro when he was when he was an amateur. Dudley was doing things like a professional from a very, very young age. And I just think it was a quite classic case of too much, too soon, too quick. It all happened to Dudley very, very quickly. And had, had Dudley been managed by Mickey Duck, I've got no doubt Dudley would have been there. At least a, Europe, a European, maybe a who knows, who knows, you know, I'm not who knows. So, 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 Duke, let me run to the hold on, we, we, we got a, a snapjack blessing. I put hold on from Jermaine Gordon, thank you yeah, for the donation, sir. He said, Blessings upon you, Tun Spence, enough respect. Thank you very much, my man. So, Duke, we're moving on to the second uh world title at Bantamweight. And I remember this fight because it was an ends. It was an elephant of castle. Yeah. And I remember coming in, bowling into the ring to MC Hammers. You can't touch this. That's it. <laughs> and, That's and, and a lot of people don't realize that at that time, fighting for the belt, you was aiming to become the first fighter this century to win yeah. world titles in two different weight classes. Yeah. And again, it's like it's almost as though the, the last man being Bob Fitzsimmons. Let's get that one yeah, in. Yeah. And it's almost as though for some reason, I mean, listen, I'm not throwing aspersions or whatever, but it's almost as though you you you, you certain people are trying to write this out of history because the young ones they're not gonna know this unless they <laughs> choose the, the fight is right. They're not gonna know yeah. that. 
They're not knowing that you were setting these records. Um, you have to go back a hundred years, not 10, not 20, not 50, 70 or 90, 100 years. And well, I just feel I said to Spencer, sorry, Duke. I said to Spencer. No, no, listen, listen, it's, it, it's, it's 104 years. Let's get it right. And, you know, when I just give you the backdrop on, on, on the Candy Zali's fight. So, um, do you remember Screen Sport? They used to program on TV called Screen Sport back in the day. We used to show all the boxing. I woke up one night about, for argument's sake, for about two o'clock in the morning. And I just happened to turn the television on. And it had Gabby Canizales fighting Miguel Laura for the mm -hmm. WBO Bantamweight Championship of the World. As I saw the fight, as the fight started to unfold, and Canizales got bounced off the canvas, then he got up and he absolutely destroyed Miguel Laura. I'd actually been offered the, the Miguel Laura fight about a year previous, but I turned it down. And the reason I turned it down was simply because I don't like boxers. I like guys that want to fight. Miguel Laura, Laura was a beautiful boxer. I mean, he had he had every move and some. And I would have had to have gone to Miami to fight him as well, and I didn't really fancy that. Anyway, long and short it was, Kenny Zales went over there and smashed him to pieces. I rung Mickey mm. Duff, Duff that morning at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and as I... Mickey, it only rang once. The phone only rang once. And Mickey Duff was watching the fight. And he said to me, I said to Mickey, I said, I've just seen Gabby Canizales knock out Miguel Laura. He said, dude, he said, I've seen it. He put the phone down. And I thought we had a bad connection. And then <laughs> so I rang him back. Yeah, I said, honest to God, true. I rang him back. I said, Mickey, I've just seen Miguel Laura knock out. Uh, I've just seen Gabby Canizales knock out Miguel Laura. He said, dude, he said, I'm on to, his, I'm on to, um, to Manny Stewart now. I'm going to make the fight. Listen, I, 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 I had no reason to doubt Mickey Duff, and anything Mickey Duff said to me previously, he'd always delivered, and he had also said to me that the only reason that um, before the Canizales fight, I had to fight what I call the fight of my life against Terry Jacob for the European bantamweight world title in Calais. The only thing that let me down over there basically was a little bit of inactivity, and it was my first fight up at bantamweight. However, the tactics that, uh, that, 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 that Jacob used to beat me, I used to beat Canizales. If you watched Canizales' fight, I set a really quick pace. Yes. There's, no, there's no power on my punches whatsoever. I'm just throwing lots of shots. That's how I can double and triple the jab. There's no power on it, but Canizales don't know that. And when you've got a guy that just keeps coming forward, they're walking on to that. So all you've got to do is just... You just got to aim it right and pick them up. Every time they come in, you switch your shot. Every time they step off, you switch your shot. Do you see what I mean? So if you watch the Canizales fight, you'll see every time he moves and adjusts the thrower shot at me, I hit him with jab. If I've done it in one jab, I hit him with two. If I've done it with two, I hit him with three. There's always two or three on the way because he's a flat-footed fighter, Canizales. Very, very strong, physically a lot stronger than me. So I knew that if I stood still, I ran the risk of probably getting knocked out. So I trained like a dog for the fight. I, you know, listen, I left no stone unturned. And when we get to the weigh-in, and Kenny Zali says to me, he's bad-mouthing me, and what he's telling me he's going to do, I'm going to knock you out, you're this, you're that, blah, blah, blah. All I could think to say to him was, if you've missed one day's training, I said, if you've missed one day's training, I said, I'll find you out. I said, because the last three months, I've been outside my front door unless I'm going to the gym. Yeah, unless I'm going to the gym or I'm going to my bed. They're the only two times I'm going out my front door. And right then and there, there was a look in his eyes, and he knew he had a fight on his hands. 
Now, I'm not saying he took me lightly. I don't think he took me lightly, but he just couldn't catch me because I was so fit. I mean, once I'd lost my flow at God's heart to Dave McCauley, my, like my six-mile runs went to eight-mile runs. My eight-mile runs went to 10. My 10-mile runs went to 15-mile runs. I used to do a 15 <coughs> Saturday, a 15 on a Sunday. Because it was like I had to, it was like I was almost like I had to start again, but I wasn't actually starting again. I was just picking up from where I left off. After I lost to Dave McCauley, yeah. he said yeah. to me, You're finished. Uh, you're never going to be the same. But I knew the reasons why I lost to McCauley. And nobody else knows this, but I'll tell you now. It, I'm not making an excuse, but two weeks before Dave McCauley, my brother Dudley got married in Barbados. I went to Barbados with Dudley. I'm his best man. Dudley didn't say to me, You know, um, you know, I'm getting married in ABC. Dudley said to me, he said to me, little man, I'm getting married in Barbados. He said, I need you there. I'm not, I'm not about not to go. I was his best man. Like Dudley was my best man from when I got married. And so two weeks before the McCauley fight, like when I, after I got back from Barbados, I'm, I'm, like, I'm like a stone and four pound overweight. So now I'm, I'm not fighting for McCauley, I'm fighting to do the weight. So when we yeah. got to the, yeah, when we got to the weighing, the official weighing, I'm still a pound overweight, which I had to skip off. And when Mickey Duff saw me at the official way, weighing for the McCauley fight, he said to me, he, he swore, he said, F me, F you, man. He said, uh, he said, you look like a black pair of braces. Right then and then, I knew the fight was lost. Because if Mickey wow. Duff didn't have confidence in me, I didn't have confidence in me. Do you see what I mean? And mm. all I kept saying to myself, because I was hurt early in that fight, the McCauley fight, I was hurt, I think, in the first round, he hurt me with a shot. All I kept saying to myself was, I can't let this guy knock me out. I just can't. I knew that I knew the title had gone, but I've gone into survival mode. From round two, watch the fight. I'm in survival mode. I'm not letting my hands go. I'm, I'm barely surviving. I'm just I'm just trying to stay out of the way because I know the title's gone and because I, I don't want to get knocked out. So, but the lesson that I learned, like I say, in the McCauley fight, and I knew that wasn't me. So going into the Canizales fight now, Mickey Duff always said to me, a happy fighter is a good fighter. So once I started doing my tick box, did I train right? Was I going to bed right? Did I eat right? Did I sleep right? Did I make the right sacrifices? I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't anything I could go, I didn't do or I didn't have. Everything was just on point. So had Kenny Zolis had beaten me, it wouldn't have been because I wasn't ready or wasn't prepared. I was more than ready and prepared. But like I say, that was my career's best performance, but not my hardest fight. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah, well, this is Bobby Wright for the 499 donation. He says, Tris Dixon better watch out. This is real. This is real boxing life story. Big up, Mr. MBE. <laughs> now, big up Bobby Wright. He's, a, big up Bobby Wright. he's actually a serviceman yeah. uh, in the army, and he always supports us, and he always defends us from all of these internet trolls. So he's a, he's a real one. Now, trust me, he's absolutely a real one. This is what I know is that when your brother Dudley got married and you went out, yes, two weeks to fight. Yes. yes. Do you regret doing that? Because it always no. seems to be you don't regret no. it. All right. But no. because of, because of the because of the weight that you yeah. you very you're very tall for being a flyweight. Uh, listen, I'm five seven. And for a flower, that's pretty tall. But here's the thing. Dave McCauley's five, seven and a half. The difference between me and McCauley was, was that obviously he trained for me like that was the last fight he was ever going to have. Now, when I looked at, his, when I looked at his, his resume, his CV, Dave McCauley had been on the deck 17 times. I thought wow. to myself, all I've got to do is show up. Yeah, all I thought, I thought all I have to do is show up. Maybe that's it. Listen, I got a little bit cocky. 
and I paid the price because I took my eyes off the price. Do you see what I mean? However, if I had to do it again, I would because I wasn't about to let my brother down. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. So, but, but having said that, it done me a favour because moving to Bantamweight was the best thing I'd ever done because if I hadn't I got beat by Macaulay, I would have stayed at flyweight and tried to make the weight again. And because you do, you try to make it again and again and again because all the time you're successful, you never question yourself. If you knew what I was actually living off for the last probably eight to ten months after the Macaulay fight, I'm sorry, in the run-up to the Macaulay fight, you know, trying to make weight, I had a few blackouts because I was, you know, so dehydrated, one thing and another. Uh, listen, I'm not making any real excuses. He beat me, but he didn't beat the best me. Do you, do you see what yeah. I mean? He didn't beat yeah. the best Duke McKenzie. Yeah. You know, I mean, I argue, I arguably, I would say, I arguably be, went on to be probably better fighters. You can't tell me David Cawley's better than um, Gabby Canizales or Cesar no, Soto no. or, no. you know, or Jesse Benavidez. I mean, you know, I mean, but it is, listen, it is, it is, it is what it is. That's just, that's life. But it, so that's not my look. Your European title challenge uh, against um, Jacob, you didn't lose that fight. I don't care that you're not Danny. You didn't lose that fight. I'll, you mean? Well, like, no, no, you, you did not lose that fight. I don't care. You, you was a, you was a foreign opponent. Um, you was boxing his ears off, and you got to think about it. you was boxing. You was boxing his ears off up to round nine, right? You get floored. Yeah. You got up. Yeah. You still. And I think if that fight was anywhere else, that fight. Anywhere it could have been in Italy, and you know you got to knock him out to get a draw. You'd have still won that fight. Well, listen, it, again, like I say, that was the fight of my life because that fight really showed me what what character was all about. I'd never been decked before, Spencer, going into that fight. I'd never been hit in a fight before and actually wanted to quit. Now I get back to my corner at the end of the eleventh round. My chin's gone down. I'm hurt, and I'm hurting it all all over because this guy's just, he's had his way with me for the last two or three rounds. And my chin's gone down. Mickey Duff lifts my, my chin with one finger and he says to me, Mackenzie, if you, I won't swear, but he's, you can imagine what he said. He said, if you effing quit, he said, you'll be eating your dinner by candlelight for the rest of your days. He said, show some character, get out there. He said, fight. He said, you can still win this. Now, I knew Mickey Duff knew I couldn't win that fight. But what Mickey Duff was looking for was character. He was looking for me not to swallow like I wanted to. And mm. I went out there and I took my beatings. And after every fight I ever had, Mickey Duff, he'd come back to my hotel room and he'd be gone straight away. You know, Mickey Duff stayed with me for pretty much half that night, just speaking to me, telling me how he was going to bring me back and how he was going to get me another world title fight. So when the Canizales fight came around second time, I was more than ready because Jacob had showed me what need, what I needed to do to become a world champion again. Do you see what I mean? So yes. I used all that experience from that fight I took to the Canizales fight. And that fight, like I say, the Canizales fight was the fight of my life. It's the best performance of my life by now. Listen, I mean, I can, I can listen, listen, listen. Before we move on um, to, the, to your third, you know, uh, world title against Benavides, Tell me something, I'm, because I'm, I'm listening to you, dude. You know, you're well spoken, you're articulate, you know, uh, very well mannered. I mean, very coherent. And for someone with so many fights, you know, you've said it. You've been, you've been decked. You've got back up. Would you feel? Do you feel that it was your dedication to the sport that has allowed you to 
have a career after boxing because we know that you know you you, you to be honest with you, you should be on TV today because I mean there's a fight coming up with Carl Frampton and, and uh, you know challenging for his third world title. I don't think there's no one better qualified, more qualified to give commentary on that contest than you. So maybe the fight is right. Listeners can send their podcast into the BTs, into BT Sports because we need Duke up there giving the real commentary because he's been there, got the T-shirt and done it. But... I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. Since we're on this subject, right? Go and, um, and while we're talking, um, Ed Robertson, who's now the head senior guy down at Sky, just sent me a message that checking out my well-being. Ed's, Ed's cool. But I do remember... Duke applying to a to a TV company. I'm not going to say what TV station it was. And while he applied to the TV station, right, for, to, for doing the boxing, the senior person in there, this is about 10 years ago, the senior person in there said, for Duke McKenzie, the former freeweight world champion, former British and European champion, to send his CV into them. Are you hearing me? You heard me, Tundi. Disrespect. Hey, the disrespect should have been, he should have said it to me. He should have said it to me. I would have gone, bruv, I would have gone down there and fly kick, fly kick the man who's given out the jobs. The disrespect <laughs> champion, the only the, the first man in a hundred years to win the, a two weight world. And you're asking me for your CV, but I know you've got players on TV now. They couldn't even. Qualified to do the fight is the, the, the price is right. We don't never know the fight is right because the fight is right. We got <laughs> the price is right. But to ask the one and only Drew McKenzie MB for for a, a CV shows me that the people employing people really it seems like his favoritism because to do a job than someone who's walked it, lived it. And as I say, one of the reasons why I brought this thing up is because you speak so well, Duke. You know, there are not many retired fighters today that can really just reel off their career and the experiences that they've had in the sport as beautiful as you. So I, so I don't know. Maybe they just want us to start talking like I mean you talk, Ben. Then we might get a job. We might get a job. <laughs> Listen, okay, it, it, um, it, 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 it is what it is. It is what yes. it is. Like, listen, no, wait, I'm disappointed not to be... Sorry, Duke, don't worry. No, I'm just saying, listen, I'm, I'm disappointed, obviously, not to have done more media, TV work, but listen, if you've got a team and you're happy with that team, you're going to stick with that team. And, Duke, there's, um, there's right there. New media, new media is what you're doing right now. New media is like, yeah, sure. You're just being out there, um, because your opinion is so so valid, especially to like. And I'm surprised that you haven't started training fighters or being involved with fighters. I know, like, you've got your gym where you're, you're, you're dealing with training like people want to keep fit and white collar people and stuff like that. But I'm saying, not exactly for you to be the trainer per se because you're running your own business, but just you being that. That old wise head in the corner, just whispering someone's ear, because you know so much. He was around in the era when, when it was about the technicalities. It was about fine tuning things. It was about the little sneaky stuff. You know what I mean? So, so I think you, 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 you'd be very valuable to anybody in this game. Go I beg you don't mash up my thing because after this, 
I'll be on the phone. Don't <laughs> <laughs> try everyone. Don't try give everybody my link. I'm on the phone straight after this. Don't worry about that. So, but, <laughs> but yeah, but it, it, mentor is telling the truth, and I'm saying to, I'm I'm sitting there listening to you, Duke, and I'm saying that soon as the next fight comes up with me and Mr. Yard. I'm, I've got two knowledges now. I've got Duke McKenzie and I've got Spencer Fearon. Because, listen, man, and, and, and again, you know, if a lot of the young people watching uh, this show and watching Duke, listen to how he speaks about the sport of boxing so humbly. Listen how he talks about the fating and, you know, and these are the, you know, I, I heard, I forgot, I think it was Brother Hopkins said that there's no teachers left in the sport of boxing today. No. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what you you know, there's no teachers. Um, Spencer knows me. Regardless of what people say about me, there's only few people that know me. And I, I'm a student. I study. I study. I, I make a lot of noise, but Spencer knows. I study. That's why my first ever corner was with Spencer Fearon's last fight, which was a championship fight. So as a trainer, I came in at the championship. commentated on. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, and it's so funny how all three of us are, are meeting up again. So I don't think that's a coincidence. But you know, Duke, <laughs> I, I, I just feel that you've got so much knowledge, and I, and I hope I hope today. And let me just reiterate that um, there is a ten percent fee that me and Spencer will be taking from you if you do get that job. <laughs> anyone that comes on our show as soon as they come on our show the world changes for them because it's the energy really? like i was looking today i was like hold on duke ain't got no blue tick on insta he ain't got no blue tick on twitter what it's is crazy. going on like what are they? Like that's what I'm just saying. I feel so passionate about you know highlighting people like yourself and Trevor Curry and there's many others who I'm quite sure along minor Spencer's sojourn in this thing that we're going to be highlighting. Otherwise, there's going to be a whole generation, maybe even two generations, of young people that don't know Duke McKenzie. Don't, yeah don't yeah. realise what he's achieved in the sport of boxing and how much knowledge he has to share. So, you know, listen, man, I could go on, but we're going to go on, the, on to the third, your third... No, 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 before you go on to the third fight, before you go on to his third world title... Yes. Duke McKenzie beats Cesar Soto. Yes. Cesar Soto was serious. Man, man. Cesar Soto... Yeah was a serious, yeah. tough guy. Rough. Yeah. 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 everything. Elbows, head. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I saw, I saw him, yeah, I saw him fight uh, Victor Rabinales in a real, it was a life and death fight. Because these are two Mexican guys, you know, fighting on like a Mexican day in Mexico. And when I say these guys just went head to head for 12 rounds, they went head to head. Sorry, for 10 rounds, they went head to head. And they just knocked lumps out one another. And it was it was it was a toss-up as to which one I was gonna fight at one point, but obviously Soto got the victory. So he became, I think, my uh, 
you know, he wasn't my mandatory. He wasn't my mandatory at all. I actually picked Cesar Soto to fight because he was quite flat-footed. And it was a good fight. It was a hard fight. And he kept me on my toes. But, you know, ultimately, I was just a little bit too slick for him on, on the night. It was, um, it was a, it was again, it was one of them fights, really, that I could draw on my whole wealth of experience that I had, you know, before I boxed him. You know, I look, I look back at the Behold fight. I look back at the, uh, the Jacob fight. I look back at um, one or two, you know, the Magri fight. You know, and put all these together to beat him. Do you see what I mean? You never stop learning, and you know, you learn, you learn on the job. And it was one, it was one of them fights. Yeah. Where he never, he, you know, he knew there was only one way he was going to beat me, and that's just by putting pressure on me. But in doing so, he kind of fell into a bit of a trap because, you know, I could, I, you know, towards the end of the fight, certainly, I was hitting him a lot more cleanly with my jab and picking him up, just like you say, little uppercuts and hooks on the inside as well, and trying to turn him. Just kept trying to offset him. And he's like, if he hit me once, I try to hit him twice. You know, it was my old sort of game, my old sort of school game that I used to play with all these guys and just do different things, but in, in a similar fashion, if you see what I mean. But um, yeah. it worked yeah. out. It worked out. And uh, just coming to you, you know, I, I've, I've always hear you, uh, heard you speak so highly of Mickey Duff. You know, uh, uh, every time I hear you mention that guy's name, I can hear the admiration in your voice for the guy. But tell me how important Mickey Duff was to your career and what you've and what is having the right manager absolutely imperative. Again, if I draw a parallel to my career, my brother Dudley's career, if Dudley would have had Mickey Duff, Dudley would have been a British European, probably possibly even a world champion, because Mickey Duff had a very unique way. If Mickey Duff liked you, he liked you. If he didn't like you, he would still do business with you, because Mickey Duff's, one of his famous sayings used to be, you know, you can still do business with somebody, but, but not like them. You can still pay somebody a lot of money, still pay them money, you don't have to like them, but it's purely business. So yeah, I, what Mickey Duff gave me, probably 80% of his fighters never had what he gave me in terms of his personal time. Now, I'm 19 years old. I'm unemployed. I'm, um, I'm scratching around. And I asked, I, when I asked Mickey Duff to manage me the first time, he, t he, he turned me down point blank. He wouldn't do it. He just wouldn't because he, he didn't live in his country. But he did it in such a lovely way. I used to bring him long distance, call and collect in America. So he answered the phone. He had to pay for it. And this went on for about six to eight, ten months, possibly even a year. I used to bring him all the time in America. And I used to wait for him. When he used to come back from America and to go to his office at Wardour Street, I used to wait at his office. I used to turn up there before he even got there. And I'd wait for him all day. Sometimes he wouldn't even show up. But one day, after about three or four months, I'd be going pretty much every day. I'd befriended all of his backroom staff. I didn't know what I was doing. I had nothing on my, on my hands except time. I used to go down to his office. It was like a day out for me. I'd go down there. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd have a shower. I'd have my breakfast. I'd put on a clean pair of trousers and a shirt. I'd go to the West End. I'm 19 years of age. And I'd go down to his office. I'd see people like Archie Kessler, Davy Jones, uh, Mickey Duff's secretary was a lady called Eileen. And he had one, another one called Val and Jill. And I ended up being like a little errand boy. I used to make these people cups of teas. I'd wait around all day, waiting for Mickey, Mickey Duff to turn up. He'd never turn up. Uh, I talked to Archie Kessler for hours. Denny Mancini was always down there. Everybody liked me. Everybody sort of welcomed me in. And Eileen particularly, Mickey Duff's his sort of head secretary, she 
seemed to really take a bit of a shine to me. She was like, well, don't worry, Doug, you know, he's, he's going to be coming. And he never did. But when he, you know, she'd always sort of like make me feel welcome. And I'll never forget the conversation. One day she rang me up, she said to me, Doug, she said, Nikki's going to be here. She said, make sure you're here at ABCD time. And I was there like two hours before. I was just made sure I was there. And then the minute Mickey Duff made eye contact with me, he shook my hand and he sort of said to me, what, you again? Because I'd rung him so many times in America. It was like we'd all we'd struck up a long-term, long-distance relationship. And he said, what, you again? And I said, yeah. I said, it's me again, Mick. I said, I want you to manage me. He said, he said didn't I tell you yesterday I can't manage you? I said, yeah, but, you know, listen. <laughs> I said, I'm here. I said, you might as well manage me. But he wouldn't have it. And this is where my luck really, really changed with Mickey Duff. And he had Mickey, he had Kelvin Smart, who was the British flyweight champion at the time. And Kelvin Smart was sparring at Thomas Beckett. And Mickey Duff had arranged me to do a couple of rounds with him. So I went down to the Thomas Beckett. I borrowed somebody's gloves. I didn't have my own sparring gloves. I borrowed somebody's gloves. And Kelvin Smart just come flying at me. And I literally shut my eyes. And I think I threw like a left hook. And I ended up shattering his nose or breaking his nose. Total fluke. If I tried it again, it would never happen. And <laughs> yeah, in the space of about an hour, there was a call from Mickey Duff's office. And he went, Duke, he said, I said, Mick, I said, what do you want? He said, Duke, he said, come to my office. I said, what do you want? He said, Duke, he said, come to my office. And I went to his office. He said, there's a contract on the table. He said, sign it. And that was it. I never looked back. No and lawyer. And you no know, lawyer. <laughs> 48 hours after that had happened, Mickey yes. Duff had rung me back again. He said to me, there's a ticket at Heathrow Airport. He said, pick it up. He said, your next fight's going to be in Vegas. And I went to Vegas. And that's where I met Bozo Edwards. That's where I met right some there. of them. Bozo fighting Hector Camacho. I see you walking out with Bozo. Oh, did you see me? Listen. I see you. Listen. I can't, listen. I can't, listen. I can't tell you how many times Mickey Duff, at least half a dozen times, Mickey Duff says to me, Duke, there's a ticket at Heathrow. There's a, Duke, there's a ticket at Gatwick. When he got Bozo Edwards to fight against um, Hector Camacho, yeah, Mickey said to me, "You can be the bucket boy." <laughs> I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like 20 years old, right? With the fights in Miami, the fights in Miami, and I'm literally walking to the ring with Bozo Edwards carrying the bucket with one yeah. hand. Yeah. yeah, and I'm I can't. This, do you know what? I, I I'll never forget the experience, the emotion I felt on that. I felt so special on that day. Because I've been, I've been to, uh, I've been in Vegas for about about three weeks at this time, and we've been going to Johnny Taco's gym in downtown Vegas, and it was, I don't know if you remember, where they did it like a round robin. There was like Edwin Rosario, Livingstone Bramble, Hector Camacho, Bozo Edwards, right? They were all fighting one another. So Bramble fought Rosario, and Bozo fought Camacho. So I'd go down at Johnny Taco's gym at like eight o'clock in the morning. Rosario would walk in and do his workout. Edwin Rosario left, Livingstone Bramble came in, did his workout. Bramble would leave, Camacho would come in with his firm, do his workout. He'd leave, Bose Redwood would come in, do it and do his workout. It was like being a kid in a sweet shop. And also, you know what it's like on, on fight week when all the big boys come in, like Evander mm -hmm. Holyfield, like Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler. Um, honestly, it was like a real who's who. All the big boys were there. And I was in Vander Holyfield. Do you know, Vander Holyfield spoke to me when I was about, Colonel Whittaker was there. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'm proper on one now. Right, <laughs> these guys were there. I, I was privileged to 
speak with some of these guys because I was just in awe of all of these guys. And I can remember speaking to like Sweet Pete for about an hour or two. Uh, Evander Holyfield was the best because he actually knew my name. So I don't know who had given him that an info on me. But Evander Holyfield, he gave me a lot of just a lot. He, he spoke to me like I was his brother. Do you see what I mean? But I watched him for about a good hour after we'd spoke and at the weigh-in for, uh, for, for the fight. And Evander Holyfield was just walking around talking to people, just everyday people, like he knew everybody. He was just a lovely, warm, beautiful human being. And like I say, I was privileged to all of this. I was exposed to all of these guys at a really early age. It was like, I was like a sponge just soaking it all up. And I, I suppose in some ways, I sort of failed my way to success because, as you know, I was a, a really poor amateur. But by the time I sort of turned professional, the experiences that I was getting, the people that I was meeting, I was going to win something. Yes. Whether that be a southern yes. area, whether that be a southern area or a British, a European, or as it was at World Championships, the experiences that I was getting was setting me up. Do you, do you see what I mean? Because I've always kept saying to me, it always say to me, your time's going to come. Have patience. Now, when you're 21, you think you're world champion. So when you're you know, on, on, the, on the rise and you've got this unbeaten record, you think you're a world champion long before you get there. And I'm, Mickey Duck kept saying to me, have patience, just be patient. Have, I couldn't see it at the time, but as it started to unfold, I just had to take a step back, just have patience and, you know, look who it's got me. Fantastic. <laughs> Come on, we're going to, before we touch on the-, the third world title now, Duke. The third world title. Yes, and that was against? Jesse Benavides. Yep. And... I remember that because that was Spence. He ain't paid his he ain't paid his electric bill, Duke. Don't worry about that. But fifteenth <laughs> of October, nineteen ninety two, you become a free weight world champion, beating Jesse Benavides after twelve rounds for the WBO Super Bantam title. Tell us all about it and how you felt. And um, uh, before I say that. You was actually a four-weight champion, a regional champion, because you won a title at regional level, um, um, a British title at, at February. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that, that speaks volumes coming up from, you know, from a fly and uh, all the way to uh, 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 featherweight. But, hold on, Joe Farmer, we've got to say, Duke, Joe Farmer says, Duke, who are your, who are you inspiring or training now? Who, in your opinion, should we be on the lookout for? Who should we look out for? There's and only one boy. Sorry? Are you training anyone presently? No, no, uh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't train boxers per se. I love yes. to train anybody. I love to, I love to train anybody. I love to get people fit. I love to give them the boxing experience, the boxing knowledge, if you will. But um, listen, I'm like most people. I, I quite like Javante Davis because Javante Davis isn't just a puncher. People have got it so twisted. They think all he does is just goes and knocks people out. He's so much more than that. That kid can actually box, and I like him. And I think he'll be the last man standing at the current four champions. Yes. You know, I, for me, he beats everybody at, at, at lightweight, junior lightweight. Yes, yes. yes. Sorry to interrupt you because he's paying, paying for this comment. So he says, stamina for so long in the camp fighters of love. Two in a row between Yard and Bilal. Yard done lost two of his last four fights. 
Tundi, did you get fired by a yard yet? Well, I'll answer that. First of all, I'll let Anthony answer that question. But on that question, um, Duke, do you think that people are written off too soon after a defeat um, nowadays? I mean, I, you know, I was, I was at Johnny Nelson um, on the show the other day, and he had 12 defeats on his record. Yeah. But he, was, he ended up being the longest reigning cruiserweight champion, I think, yeah. in history. Yeah. So, you know, it's like nowadays, you lose one fight or two fights and you're written off. And what do you, what, what do you have to say about that, Duke? That, listen, it, it, it is wrong because the fights you lose often make you. The fights you yeah. lose often shape your character. The fights you lose often tell you who you are and what you need to do to go on to become better than where you were. So it's, it's, not, it's not really a question of, it's, you shouldn't go unbeaten in, in like 10, 15, 20, 30 fights because that's not doing you any favours. It's always good to take a hit, I believe. You know, if you get beat early in your career, great. But, you know, if you get beat after like 10, 15, 20 fights, even better still because that will really shape somebody's character. That tells you a lot about the fighter. So if this guy's specifically referring to you and your guy there, Sunday, yeah. you know, your guy should come back better than what he was and if you look at where he was if you look at where he was to where he is now he knows yeah. what it is to lose now and he'll also know that he can't leave fights to be it was a close fight and you yeah. can't leave it that close yeah you've got you know when you're in that final third you've got to start pulling away yeah and not only that you you know again it's so great to hear it from a man who's done it a lot of these people that come and the only reason why I put up his, his question because he's paid for it <laughs> it's a good thing nowadays mate if you want to criticize someone we pay for it so I love I love this this platform but you know again you know just talking about and at 12 amateur fans and he lost to arguably the best light heavyweight you know in Russia no we went over to Russia you know and 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 he, he he's got to where he's got a meteoric, really, and um, he, he's got a lot to learn, and and we never had the uh, yeah. amateur experience, you know. We never had twelve yeah. amateur fights. So I never listen. I never really listen to people like that because I know that the story ain't over. We, you know, it's just begun, as you said. He's in the embryonic stage of his career, and he's still got a long way to go. But I just, you know, it ain't about me or the team, but the fact that he's paid for it. To get that question up there, I thought uh, I'd be good. You're a good person to ask that question. But as I said, moving on to the the the, the, the final world title, Spencer was about to say something before he got cut off. Spence, touching it against Jesse Benavides. Can you hear me, Spence? You're mute, Spence. You're mute. Sorry, my apologies there, gentlemen. Yes. Wait, so, uh, back here. We were saying that, you know, you were just about to touch on the Benavides. Yeah, the, uh, the, fight. The, Jesse, the Jesse Benavides fight. I remember this. Because I remember when it when it when the fight took place. And I remember Gary Mason, God rest his soul. He went on a big rant about the lack of support that you got from the press. Hold on, hold on. Didn't Gary Mason yeah. have another guy to win? <laughs> yeah. And then 
And he went on the beat, and I think we're bad. One of cool went there. Tell me, I can speak ill of the dead. Gary's my friend, man. <laughs> no, but I, I'm just saying that because I was watching it last night. <laughs> there goes to Gary, you know, and, and, and he's like, yeah, I don't, you know, they ain't giving Duke the, the, the credit he deserves. And then the commentator goes, the commentator goes, um, say so who you think's gonna win the fight, Gary? And he goes, well, I'm gonna say Benavides. And I'm like, come on, yeah. man. Um, <laughs> What's going on here? But anyway, that's another story. But you know well, what? Let, let me say. Go on. That was a great win. Well, listen, the, the... Sorry, go on, Duke. Go on, Duke. Well, I was going to say, you know, the, the Benavides fight, was that, that fight for me, the difference between me and Jesse Benavides was where he made his mistake was, to him, it was just another paycheck. You know, given the fact that I'd lost the Bantamweight world title under the circumstances that I had, losing to Rafael Del Valle in, in a round. And it, to him, it was just a paycheck. And when you look at Jesse, Benav Jesse Benavides, his record, his, his resume, he was, um, I think he was, he'd only lost once in about 36. Champion, former, former WWE champion. Uh, he'd beaten the former WWE champion. He was ranked number one by the Ring magazine, and he was absolutely on a roll, you know, crunk fighter, ABCD. So um, he thought all he had to do was turn up. My, my, my trainer thought was going into the fight was, this is going to be my last fight. And if I can't beat him, then there is, there's, you know, there isn't going to be, there's no tomorrow, there's no way back for me. So I was prepared just to leave everything I ever had, you know, my whole soul and spirit, I was prepared to leave it in that ring, which is what I did on that night, because I couldn't even walk out of that ring after the fight. I was so elated, and it was like someone had really pulled the rug from underneath my feet because I I was just so deflated after the fight. And like I say, because I left everything in there. And but if you watch the fight, I get a little bit of luck because Lady Luck shines on me. I think we're going into the tenth round. I make the fight. I think I'm one round down with two to go. But if you look at the fight, at the beginning of the, I think, the 11th round, I throw a right, I throw a straight right and a left hook. My foot is clearly behind his foot. He trips over, but the referee doesn't see it. He just sees the punches. Now it's a 10-8 round to me with one round to go. So now I'm one round up with one round to go. All I say to myself is, if I can win the last round, I might get this. I might get this because I think I've won now by two rounds. And I win the last round. So in my in my own mind's eye one of the judges is going to give me the fight if they scored it like I, how i had scored it then i've won it by two rounds which one of the judges did one judge give it to me by two rounds i think another one give it to me by three rounds another one i don't know what fight he was watching give it to me by eight rounds but that's for another day yeah yeah but, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, I don't know what yeah. yeah, but like I say, I, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was pleasing, pleasing fight. When I look now, we're getting a bit of feedback there. We're getting, bit, we're getting a bit of feedback from, we're getting a bit of feedback. I don't know if you oh, move, move your computer no, screen or is that okay? All right. Yeah, we can, yeah, we can hear you now. We can hear you. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't really listen. I 
the Benavidez fight was, was, was my most rewarding fight, my most pleasing fight, the fight that gives me more satisfaction than any of my other uh, fights that I had previously because that fight has set me up to be, in British boxing terms, a history maker. And when all said and done, you know, when you look back in British boxing history, my name's going to be right up there. And that's something which gives me tremendous, makes me tremendously proud, not only as a boxer, but as a person. You know, like I say, I have the worst amateur pedigree, certainly of any professional world champion. And when I look back on it now, one's a sport, the other's a profession. My style was obviously, obviously suited better for the professional game as opposed to the amateur game. Yes, yes, yes. Spence? Yes, sir, man. Drew McKenzie was just one of the guys um, who, when I was, I don't know, I think I was about 13 years old, and I got to move around with Drew McKenzie and Thomas Obeke. I remember going and telling all my, my mates at school, yeah, I was sparring with Drew McKenzie. I didn't even know who Drew McKenzie was, right? And then after that, um, Duke got elected. He was in the Ring Magazine. He was like number five in the Ring Magazine. So this is before Duke became yeah. then European champion. And I remember, like, I always religiously, I bring the Ring Magazine into, into my class. And like, one of the kids looks at Duke McKenzie, rah, he's number five in Ring Magazine. He's going nuts. And then from yeah. there, I'm like, a little star at school. Because, like, yeah, I, like, I was very fortunate as a little kid to just move around. He's like, yeah, come, we've got... Except Thomas Abekin, I got to move around with Duke McKenzie. At that time, um, Colin McMillan was, I used to watch Colin McMillan and Duke McKenzie spar. I'm telling you, you'd pay money to watch that spar. Mm. You'd pay money to watch that sparring. And not, <laughs> it was like, the thing what got, apart from you becoming um, world champion, but just before you becoming world champion, it was the pearly train crash. And yeah, the plane crash. Yeah, what was it? It was like I think like five people died, but loads of people got injured. That's right. And then it was in. It happened. The crash was in Duke's back garden, and I remember Duke being on Terry Wogan. Yeah, that was a big thing, you know, to, to be on Terry Wogan. Terry that's Wogan. That's a big show. That's a big BBC show. I remember Duke come on there. And it was like, yeah, well, I was indoors having my tea as you do. <laughs> I mean, <it> <laughs> And I looked out the window. So, yeah, I just dropped all my people. I binge running down in math. I run out to come up with people. So, people are... <laughs> Duke was a hero. Duke was a hero. Let me see. You know, the only person that does a better, a better person is my... Anyone that does... <laughs> I tell you, that impersonation is fantastic, Chan. That was, that, was a, that was a real... Oh, boy. Thanks for that, Spence. I really appreciate it, champ. Uh, you know... Listen, listen ladies and gentlemen, let, let me close it off properly, because uh, for myself, you know, this has literally been a, such an educational episode of The Fight is Right, and, you know, I, I, I said to Spence, and Spence said to me, the name of Duke McKenzie... As long as we've got something to do about it, or, or do do with it, we're never going to forget you, Duke, because you're a legend of the sport. You're a legend of British boxing, and um, I only my I think my my one wish is that after this goes out on air on YouTube, that some of these TV companies really pick up because I just feel that 
just the way you speak about boxing, the knowledge that you have to give of the sport, it is needed. Some of these commentators, what I'm seeing on, and these guys, what they got on on TV, no disrespect, they they are where they are. But I just feel that they don't, they can't give us the real perspective of the sport because they haven't done it. You know, you got the t-shirt, you done it, and um, let's hope the phone, let's hope the phone rings for you, Duke, after this, and uh, they give you that slot, whether it's BT, Sky Sports. ITV, the zone. The zone seems to be handing out all the checks. So we need Duke McKenzie on the zone. <laughs> exactly. So, so, but for me, Tunde Jai, yeah. For myself, Tunde Jai, Duke, I'm honored. And uh, one of the things, one of the, the sentences I'm taking away from this show is you saying, there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Drew McKenzie. Spence, side him off how you want to side him off, mate. Listen, been a plum pleasing pleasure to have the freeweight world champion, the legendary Duke McKenzie. And I got big up Duke even more that I know that his parents were from Clarendon, Jamaica, the exact birthplace and burial place of my old man. So big up Duke McKenzie for that. Dream yeah. believe it become it. Yeah, sign us off, brother Baba Tundi Ajayi. Oh man, Thanks. okay. I, 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 I don't want to sign it off because, Duke, listen, Duke, have you got any last words before we sign it off? Yeah, listen, listen, yeah, I have actually. You know, if you hang around the barber shop long enough, you're going to get a haircut, right? So, with a little bit of luck, uh, you know, listen, I love talking about the sport of boxing. I love to, I love to give people what I've learned over a 17 year career. And, you know, listen, I love it. It's, it's what I do, it's, it's who I am. And if I can, if I get an opportunity to work for any of them, any any of the uh, networks, then listen, I'll take it. Of course, I will. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But I want to say thank you, Spencer. Appreciate you, Tunde. I appreciate you too. Thank you very much for writing on your program. It's just been yes, listen. You've yes, you, you made me relive some of my some of the happiest times of my life. And listen, take it away from me. And I and I give. I really thank you for giving me the opportunity express myself and talk about my career all over again. Ladies and gentlemen, we know with these words. Wait, 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 wait. Because <laughs> everyone's got glasses on apart from me, so I've got to put these on. <laughs> Dream it, believe it, become it. Come on down. Thank you very much, Drew McKenzie, for joining us on the show. Yeah, we keep on doing what you're doing, little man. Take care. God bless. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Tunde. I'll see you again, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.